Well, today we are launching a brand new series on gender and identity, and I want to begin with a heartfelt thank you. I want to begin with a heartfelt thank you to the ECC family. Let's start there. When we launched ECC, one of the promises that we made to one another is that we would not duck the hard stuff. And I want to commend you because year after year, you've risen to the occasion. When we found ourselves in these different historical moments, you've gone there together with us um, as we've taken these things on. And at this moment, I'm not aware of anything right now that is causing more pain or more confusion or more division in families and friendships and schools and workplaces and churches than conflicting beliefs about gender and identity. So thank you, ECC, for having the courage to go here. And not only that, but the support that we feel to have these difficult conversations. And I also want to extend a very heartfelt thank you to those of you who aren't a part of the ECC family for joining us for this important conversation. And I tell you what, I don't blame you if you're not coming in with your guard up a little bit. You know, you may be wondering, are you going to be met with shame? Are you going to be met with ridicule? Are you going to be met with rejection if you disagree with what we have to say? Or in the other extreme, is this going to be a church that just says, we're going to set the Bible aside so that we can have a surface level sense of peace? So I don't blame you if you're coming in with your guard up on either of those. If you choose to join us for this series, here's our commitment to you. We are going to do our absolute best to wrestle with difficult questions in a manner that is theologically sound, that is intellectually honest, and that is exceedingly gracious. Conversations about gender, they are a gender, they are all around us. And growing numbers of people are identifying with terms that most Americans hadn't even heard of before a few years ago. So we're gonna have a family conversation about this. And by God's grace, we hope to do it in a way that reflects the dignity and the respect and the love that we have for people here at this church. We put this conversation on our family calendar about a year ago so that we could listen, so that we could learn, so that we could study, and that we could grow. And one of the things that we've done a lot of over the last year is listen to really listen to our teens, to listen to our parents, to listen to grandparents, to uncles and aunties, to youth workers, professionals in education, and in the medical community, mental health community, business world, theologians, coaches, people from just about every age and life stage. We've asked you to share what are your concerns? What are your hopes for this series? Here is a partial list here we go. There were lots of hopes regarding our use of Scripture. A lot was said around that, that will anchor this series to biblical precepts and principles, that will walk through difficult passages together, that will discuss how texts have been weaponized and taken out of context. There was also a lot of conversation around the importance of this series. There is much misinformation and many underreported stories. There are long-term, life-altering decisions that are being made as individuals, families, businesses, schools, churches, and government without thoughtful deliberation. And instead of working together, people are being pitted against one another. Now, there are a lot of hopes around clarity that will address questions that people are asking that we won't reinforce, popular stereotypes or simplistic narratives that will provide clear, definitive answers when we can 
and that people will be able to sit in the tension when we can't. There were a whole lot of hopes, too, about our tone, that our messages will speak to and not just about our LGBTQ plus friends, that we'll treat one another with dignity and respect, and that we'll model an approach that's theologically sound, intellectually honest, and gracious in demeanor. There were a whole lot of hopes about support. Can we get some support? that will identify helpful resources for specific needs for a deeper dive, that will equip people to have healthy, productive conversations, that will create safe spaces where we can ask sensitive questions and engage in helpful, productive dialogue. There are also a lot of hopes and concerns about the big picture. How did we get where we are? And are we even asking the right questions? Now, there are a whole lot of hopes and concerns about specific situations. Should everyone adopt the same practices with pronouns? What are the best approaches to help people who are experiencing anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts? What are the best ways to navigate difficult conversations with family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers? And we got three sets here about confusion. There's a lot of confusion. A lot of confusion. Language and definitions keep shifting. How do we speak the truth in love to people who have different perspectives? How and when do we confront potentially dangerous practices and policies? When do we simply agree to disagree? Again, under that category of confusion, why, are there so, why is there so much conflict? Why is there so much conflict among doctors, counselors, educators, religious leaders, and the LGBTQ plus community? And what standards for fairness? Uh, should we adopt when it comes to sports, bathrooms, schools, wards, scholarships, prisons, women's shelters, other spaces? And who should set these standards? Again, under the category of confusion, how do I respond when I see people villainizing parents, villainizing professionals, and others who are sincerely trying to help? How do I not burn bridges? How do we offer hope when it doesn't feel like hope? And one more category here. There are a lot of hopes and concerns about our church. Will we be labeled? we go here as a one-topic church? Will our approach put us in the crosshairs of activists on both the right and the left politically? Will this conversation get us kicked out of the community center? And will this conversation divide us as a congregation? This is a partial list. A partial list. And perhaps this concern that was raised sums up our biggest challenge for the series. Here it is. This came out of one of our at-the-table conversations. Eight weeks won't be enough. Eight weeks won't be enough. Well, we are a Christian church. So we're going to do our absolute best to approach this conversation from a distinctly Christian perspective. What does the kind of costly obedience that authentic Christianity points us to, what does that look like? What does it look like? Now, just to be upfront, there is so much that we don't know. So much that we don't know. But here's one thing that we do. The God that we place our trust in, he has promised to be with us until the end of the age. And until he returns, we've got the example and teachings of Jesus. We have the Old and the New Testaments. We have the Holy Spirit. And we've got one another. And there's also a lot of great research and great resources that we're going to be able to point people to over the course of this series that we can learn and draw from. One of the books that I got introduced to over the course of this series is this one. Of the books that we have, this for, for families, for parents, this is the, the one I'd encourage you to start with. It's called Emerging Gender Identities. Uh, it's a fantastic resource. And he, in his book, actually the authors, in their book, they coined the phrase 
a hermeneutic of hope. I love that phrase. In fact, as we start this series, I want to start here. If you're, if you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Christians are uniquely positioned to offer a hermeneutic of hope. Now, if you're not familiar with the word hermeneutic, I don't blame you, it's a, but it is a great word. It simply means to interpret correctly. That's what it means, to interpret correctly. The Bible can be difficult to interpret. Some reduce Scripture to a cold, impersonal list of do's and don'ts. Others go to the other extreme, and they believe that the Bible's emphasis on love means that we should enthusiastically support any choice that a person makes. For those who are courageous enough to allow the Scripture to shape and guide your life, at Emmanuel, we believe you can discover a hermeneutic of hope. Hope that the one who created you will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. And that's true if you're the one who needs help. And that's true if you're trying to help others. He won't leave you. He won't abandon you. God's extended an invitation to adopt you as his son and daughter, to welcome you into his family, to fill you with his spirit so that you can help others, and ultimately to welcome you into an eternal home where pain and confusion and a sense of incongruity is no more. So let's begin our eight-week journey towards hope right here in the Scriptures. If you have your Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to open up with me to Psalm 139. For those who know Psalm 139, this is a good place to start. Isn't that fantastic? I want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible at home, there's a great place you can go. Just go to Bible.com. They've got a fantastic Bible app and all sorts of resources there that you can find. All right, Psalm 139 is an intensely personal song about an intensely relational God. It's attributed to a poet, shepherd, warrior, and king named David, and it begins like this, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. What a profound statement that is. And that's worth writing down and reflecting deeply on. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write down, this down. You are seen and you're known. You are seen and you're known. David's life, the author of this, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his life was filled with so much pain and so much violence and so much chaos and so much fear and so many things that didn't make sense. And David was convinced that none of this escaped God's sight or his knowledge. All right, verses two through four. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You stretch out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You're seen. You're known. And this is true when it feels like your mind belongs in a different body. This is true when you have questions and doubts. This is true if you're filled with pride or overconfidence, this is true if you're on the receiving end of hate or ignorance. This is true if you're the one who's dished out the hate or acted in ignorance. This is true 
if you don't know how to love the way that Jesus did in a given situation, and it's true if you find yourself losing hope, you're seen, you're known, and you're loved. All right, verse five. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Now, in, in, for many of us, when we hear these words in our context, he's actually saying the opposite of what many people might be thinking when you hear these. Because we think, hey, don't hem me in. Don't lay hands on me. It's, it's the opposite of that. This is powerful Im- imagery. God who sees everything, God who sees the good, the bad, and the ugly, instead of being repulsed, he desires to hem us in like this, to provide a protective hedge around us. The, the, the resource I looked at, they said, that's what's trying to be communicated here. They didn't use this imagery, but, but I, I used, I, the thought that came to my head is like when a, when a loving father would tuck their child in so that they feel secure in that bed, and then they, they guard that house at night. You hem me in. What beautiful image. And then lay your hand upon me. That's powerful too. In that time and in that place, that's a sign of protection. That is a sign of blessing. That's a sign of assurance. Wow. When you consider that that's coming from the one who spoke the universe into existence, that he sees us, he knows us, and he hems us in. That's, that's powerful. So out of that then, verse 6 makes a whole lot of sense. Such knowledge, all these things he's talked about so far, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I I cannot attain it. Now, I want you to remember that line, verse 6, because David is going to return to that theme a little bit later. But first come verses like this, 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, your hand will lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Okay, this was fun. In the the ancient world, getting the context here, I never even thought through this lens. So imagine where they are. Most people have a pretty good idea where Israel is. So imagine that area. In the ancient world, heavenly bodies were sometimes referred to as having wings. So like the moon and the sun, it was like they had wings. So the imagery of verses 9 through 10 is kind of like this. If I had wings and I could rise up in the east and I could set all the way in the, not just where the the horizon hits the sky, but all the way there and then go down into the Mediterranean Sea to the bottom. Any place in between, God's hand is there to hold me, to hem me in, to guide me. His guidance can be felt wherever I go. All right, it keeps going. Verses 11 through 12. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light around me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, for night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, if all this isn't profound enough, that God sees all, knows all, is in all those places, we come to these words that I I think provide the framework for a deep, rich ethic about the dignity of every human life from conception. Look at this, verses 13 to 14. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Especially as we get further into this series and we start talking about the, the disconnect that so many people are experiencing, don't give up too quickly on the fact that you are fearfully and wonderfully made just as you are right now. Powerful words, powerful words. One of the resources I looked at said that those words translated as, quote, fearfully and wonderfully made can also be interpreted as, quote, fearfully and wonderfully set apart, referring to the way that God chose the children of Israel for a specific plan and purpose and set them apart. It's like each of us as individuals are called out, knit together, set apart for plans and purposes. Again, I, I believe that verses 13 and 14 are at the heart of what the Scripture says about our body. And I encourage you to write this down. If you didn't already figure out these blanks, straightforward, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Last week, Laura and I, we had the opportunity to go spend some time near the ocean, right in the Sarasota area where the hurricane's coming. This universe that we live in is Amazing. It is fearfully and wonderfully made. Planets, stars, deserts, mountains. It's breathtaking. And as someone who was once pre-med, the work of our creator is even more stunning when you look at it through a microscope with honest and open eyes. According to our sacred text, when our creator designed this world, he said it's good. When he designed the first two people, does anyone remember what he said? It is very good. Very good. Very good. All right, let's continue. Verses 15 through 18. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. All right, well, I mentioned that we come back to this theme that David put out there in verse six. The knowledge that God knows us deeply and cares this much. This is too good to be true, which doesn't seem to make sense, knowing who we are. But then comes this. <laughs> Psalm 139 has these verses that seem like they're out of place. Because this has always been one of these things I've just I've noticed this. In fact, truth be told, there, there are times where I've taught on 130, Psalm 139, and I just left these next verses out because I'm like, what do you do with this? They sound so out of place. Here are all these beautiful words about God loves us and knows us, and everywhere he goes, he is. And then comes verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, God, men of blood, depart from me. Has that verse ever felt out of place to anybody else? All right, to me it has. And then what do you do with these next two? They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. These three verses have felt so out of place to me in the past, again, that I've been guilty of leaving them out. 
when I taught in this passage. And I'll even have a, I'll be even be more honest with you. Just recently, I'm like, oh, I know how that works. I, this, this works. This is kind of like just David's humanity coming out, you know? And it's kind of out of place because sometimes our humanity gets mixed up. But after spending more time with this psalm, perhaps these verses aren't as abrupt as they seem. In fact, isn't this where you would naturally go if you believed the first verses? If you really believe those first verses that come before this, that God is who the Scripture says he is, then if people were aligning themselves up and against that, if they were actively defying this God, working against his plans and purposes, trying to destroy what he's trying to create, doesn't it naturally flow that that would make you mad? If God is as good and as great as the Bible claims him to be, if someone positions himself as an enemy to God and his work, how do you respond? One of the voices that we're going to introduce you to over the course of this series is a woman named Jackie Hill Perry. She uses these words to describe how the true enemy of God seduces God's people. It's the same strategy that he used in the garden with Adam and Eve. Look, look at how she phrases this. A lying God can't be trusted. Satan was framing God as a liar and himself as the bearer of truth. That God's word was as fickle as a promise in the mouth of a con artist. God's holiness and goodness and glory, it's all a sham. Only to be fully discovered by doing what he commanded she shouldn't. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The devil has been handing out bonus checks to his marketing team. Our adversary has convinced people that his hermeneutic is right. He's convinced people that you can discover your authentic self by doing the things that God commanded us not to do. The evil ones even positioned authentic followers of Jesus as we're the enemy. We're on the wrong side of love. We're on the wrong side of justice. We could spend a couple weeks on this next quote. I found this one. This is by a guy named Philip Yancey. He writes this, those who condemn the church for its blind spots do so by the gospel principles, arguing for the very moral values that the gospel originally set loose in the world. Isn't that well stated? If it makes you mad to see people misrepresenting the one who knows us best, the one who loves us most, you're not alone. That made David mad. If it makes you mad to see people claiming the moral high ground that they didn't take, and that they don't hold, you're not alone. That makes me mad too. And if it seems like those who are hostile to the ways of God, they're gaining ground, it can cause you to lose hope. If, if you don't anchor to this next point, I want to invite you to write this down. This fallen world will be renewed. Can I get an amen to that one? If we believe the scripture, this fallen world we live in, it's going to be renewed. And that includes our minds. That includes our bodies. Scripture records this brief moment in time when everything was as it should be. It also records the moment when sin entered the world. We're going to spend the next two weeks on this because this is so important. It is so foundational to everything else we're going to talk about. We're going to spend the next two weeks on this. We're going to look at what was recorded in Genesis 1 through 4. But the Bible doesn't end in Genesis 4, does it? 
it doesn't end. And in the pages that follow Genesis 4, more and more is revealed about a good and gracious God who believes this world is worth saving. This world is worth renewing. And where Psalm 139 takes us next is it says we are part of that. We are part of that renewal. That's where this psalm lands. Final two verses, 23 and 24 of Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in who? In me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. It's so easy to point fingers at others. So easy to point fingers at others. You're an enemy of God. You're working against his purposes. Blah, 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 blah. What if more of us started here? Search me. Test me. God who sees all, here I am before you. Lead me back home. Help me to be a part of your good, redeeming work. Friends, we live in a world that's fallen. And as we live in this time between the times, this time between Genesis 5, Revelation 22, it's going to be hard. It is going to be hard. When we read through the scriptures, the Bible consistently uses male and female categories. If we look at the scripture, it consistently refers to marriage as a covenant between men and women. The Bible places a firm boundary around sexual intimacy, faithfulness within the covenant of marriage, abstinence outside of it. For a whole lot of people, that doesn't fit their experience. When our desires, our minds, our bodies seem at odds with what the Scripture does, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Will we choose to anchor to Scripture? Will we choose to join God in His work? Or are we going to choose to anchor to something else? One of the many reasons that I believe Christians are uniquely positioned to offer a hermeneutic of hope is this, that in this fallen world, you don't have to walk alone. You don't have to walk alone. In all this confusion, in all the times where we're going to go off the rails, you don't have to walk alone. Another voice we're going to introduce you over the course of this series is Rachel Gilson. Rachel is a woman. She has a same-sex attraction, and she once believed that Christianity, because of that, it's not for me. It is not for me until she took a closer look at these scriptures, until she made friends with authentic followers of Jesus. She wrote a book called Born Again This Way, and in it she writes this. She says, in Jesus, we're God's people. And every one of these words is so important. Beloved, gathered, and seen. Beloved, gathered, and seen. We're in this together. There's a whole lot of wise and caring people. They've invested a whole lot of thinking and research and prayer into questions like these. Does the Bible really place boundaries around traditional categories? And what if we don't fit into them? 
Questions like this, under what circumstances, if any, should a person transition, socially or physically? Questions like these, what does a God-honoring response look like when it comes to pronouns and policies? When do we agree to disagree? When do we advocate for a specific situation? Whatever your specific situation is, what are your specific questions are, you don't have to walk alone. You don't have to try to figure all this out by yourself. Over the next seven weeks now, let's open our Bibles together. Let's draw from the best thinking available. And let's engage in this important conversation together. So, to that end, to that end, I want to offer this challenge to us. And it comes from the movie Hoosiers. Just as a reference point, how many have seen that old movie, basketball movie Hoosiers? All right, about, oh, most of this group, good. All right, so and maybe you've seen it too online. If not, go ahead and, and take a look at this movie night idea. In the movie, there's a small town school in Indiana. They love basketball. They absolutely love it. And a new coach arrives. And as he arrives, he discovers there's a team that's okay, but all they want to do in practice is scrimmage. They just want to scrimmage. If you're not familiar with what a scrimmage is, a scrimmage is when you got two teams and they play each other, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter because no one really wins. Sometimes you'll scrimmage against your own team, sometimes another team, but no one really wins when you scrimmage. When it comes to this important conversation, here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing most people either want to do one of two things. They either want to disengage completely, like I don't even want to get on the court. I'm not going to touch this. Or they just want to scrimmage. They just want to jump right in to all the arguments, all the phrase, all that kind of stuff. And when it comes to this um, conversation, people are saying, you know, what are your thoughts coming into this now that it's finally here? I've got a lot of peace about this. My number one concern is that people aren't going to have enough patience because they just want to go to the scrimmage. Just tell me where you stand as a church, so that I know if you're with us or against us. That's where a lot of people are at. And then there's another group of people, they're like, I don't know what to believe, just tell me. Just tell me where I should stand. How many of you know it's more complicated than that? If we start and stay in scrimmage mode, you can end up turning potential allies and adversaries. You start scrimmaging enough with your own team, you start to think they're, they're not on your team, right? And if you always stay in scrimmage mode, you never really learn the principles and the skills that are going to help you when there's a lot on the line. I was sharing this analogy with Joel, and I'm so glad you're here, Joel. Um, Joel is a sort of embarrassier, but he's brilliant brilliant pastor, theologian. In fact, my kids, they said, Dad, you keep saying how smart he is. We know. We know. <laughs> He's going to be helping us out um, in this dive into Genesis over the next couple weeks. And so we were talking about this. We went out to, to grab lunch, and he added something I hadn't thought about with the analogy of the scrimmage. He goes, in the movie, the players and their parents, they thought the coach was the enemy. They thought the coach was the enemy because the results took time. They took time. I'm going to ask you to trust us. 
not because we have all the answers and we're just going to reveal them in week eight. Eight weeks isn't going to be enough. But here's what I can say. If you will engage with us over these next eight weeks, if you take advantage of these incredible resources that are out there, if you lean in, instead of closing yourself off, I believe you're going to come away with hope. Hope that our sacred Christian texts, they're trustworthy. You're seen and you're known that right now, as you are, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And this fallen world that causes so much angst, it's going to be renewed. And as you struggle with your fears and confusion and questions and anger and doubts, you don't have to walk alone. You don't have to walk alone, at least not here at Emmanuel. So let's start this series right. We opened up to scriptures, and today we want to give you an opportunity right here, right now, to say yes to the way of Jesus for the first time or for the first time again. And we want to make this opportunity visible. We want to make this physical. We want your mind and your body to be in sync in your response. If you're new to our church, we're, gonna, we're going to commemorate something that we call Holy Communion. And when we do, we commemorate this real event. Here's how it's recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's so much that the Bible doesn't say about the sacrament of Holy Communion. It doesn't give a specific age. It doesn't give a specific method. It doesn't prescribe a specific type of bread or wine. But here is something that the Bible does say. 1 Corinthians 11.28. Let a person examine themselves. You know, there's so much finger-pointing when it comes to conversations about gender and identity. So much finger-pointing. Communion is a time when we say, search me, God, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So let's do that together. Let's join our voices in these prayers because we all got our stuff. We all have our struggles. We all have our doubts. Those of you who are at home, after we pray these prayers, we want to invite you to take your juice or your wine, take your bread, dip it in there, and remember that this is the body and blood of Christ given and shed for you. We want to encourage you to take some time. Make these prayers your own before you do that. Those of you who are here at the studio, there's not going to be any ushers telling you when it's your time to go. We want that to be a conscious decision that you make through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to come and participate in this. So let's prepare ourselves for this moment right now. I want to invite you to pray these, pray these prayers. And it, it might seem strange for some of you, especially if you're, if you're driving right now or listening to this. I, one person wrote in, um, was commenting on one of the last messages, said, I was, I was listening while I was mowing my lawn. So wherever you are, pray these prayers with us. We invite you to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known,
Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Father, thank you for giving that picture in my head that we're gonna start off on a journey and you've gotta have nourishment. You've gotta have calories. You have to have fuel for this journey. We can't enter into this journey without your strength if we're gonna have any hope of finishing it well. And Lord, I wanna pray specifically right now for those who've been journeying. This isn't the start for them. For many, this might be a lifetime. This may be years. They're in the thick of it. And Lord, maybe they're weary. They're tired. May this be a moment of refreshment, of new hope, of new strength and new energy to continue on. Father, thank you that we're not alone. And thank you that you've given us prayers that we can unite our voices in. And so, Father, in addition to the songs we're about to sing, we now unite our voices with a prayer that you taught your disciples to pray, Jesus. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.